Hello, welcome back to a brand new edition of Social Convos. Diego, I'm starting to enjoy the intro music more and more every week. So my compliments to the intro, really. Uh, we took our time, we took our sweet time to going through that library. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Hey, uh, so for everybody watching, whether you're watching on LinkedIn, on YouTube or on Facebook, thank you for joining in. Uh, we have a brand new edition from Social Convos. We had our first female guest and we decided we liked it this much that we decided to introduce another female guest. So without further ado, Diego, the floor is all yours. Sure. So as you all know, last week we had um, Doreen uh, give us a perspective on how she got to those marketing stages. Um, so if you missed that episode, check it out. It's already live on the website and the streaming platforms. But to continue the conversation on marketing, but to give us a different perspective, we've invited uh, none other than Rowan Smith, all the way from Barbados, to join us tonight. And a little backstory on Rowan, how I met her, it's quite funny because we didn't even meet in Suriname or Barbados. Out of all the places that we met was at the other side of the world in New Zealand. And what's even funnier is... When I was there, just exactly around this time last year, so probably a year ago, a new student finding my way around. And there's this little Caribbean community there that often meets up, uh, have something to eat, uh, gets a drink. And one of my other friends told me about it, uh, forwarded my number to Rowan, and I get a WhatsApp message from Rowan. Hey, we're having a get-together this weekend. Um, want to join us. But as I'm reading that message, I was going through my course guides and I read some uh, the course description, who the lecturers are, and I see Rowan Smith from Barbados currently pursuing a PhD in marketing. And I'm like, could it be? Could it really be? So I go to this dinner and there's a seat right beside her, free. I take a seat there. So my first thing is, um, Rowan, so are you my lecturer? And that's how we first met. Rowan, <laughs> welcome to Hi. the show. Hi, everybody. Thanks so much for having me, Jean-Luc and Diego. So Glad to so have you here. I, I want to know, of course, because you're on the, on the other side of the world, uh, and there's just somebody that decides uh, we should have dinners with people from the Caribbean. Like, how did how did it get started? I'm really interested a little bit about the backstory about that as well. Well, that's so interesting because I was one of the first to arrive in 2017. So February 2017. And when I got there, there weren't any other Caribbean students that I knew about. So I asked the... Um, international student office to put me in contact with two students and a couple of months later they finally got back to me and gave me the name of two students and then um, I only met one and then after that a friend from Trinidad came well we weren't friends then she came from Trinidad um, but she had done her master's there 
And she was there for a month in New Zealand. And then she found out from somebody, a mutual friend, that there was another Caribbean person around. So she was like, oh my goodness, um, I wish I had known that you were here because I would have, you know, gone together with you and welcomed you. And I'm like, when did you come? And she said, July. And I was like, I was here since February. I should be welcoming you. <laughs> and then the next year we had about seven students come and then, um, well, actually maybe about 10. And then the year after that was Diego, I think, did Tiffany come that time as well? And um, a, a couple more St. Lucians. And we ended up having a group of 14 students, which is the largest amount of students that we've ever had on our campus at any one time. And so I guess it kind of started from a place of needing community. Um, I must say in the beginning, the first year, especially, it was very lonely. So when the others started to come in, it was really good to find other Caribbean people that you could bond with and who understood you and you didn't have to constantly be explaining stuff and explaining your culture. So it was, yeah, so that's how we ended up, you know, having multiple get togethers and eating lots of food and playing games and listening to music. Really fun times. Yeah, and it was really heartwarming because um, you're there and you don't know anybody. And mm -hmm. especially coming from Suriname, you know this, John, look, when, when we go out, it's a rarity to encounter someone. So mm -hmm. having this Caribbean community was like an extended kind of family, mm -hmm. in a sense. So that, that was pretty nice. But I like how, well, maybe unfortunate for Roanne that she, she was the first, one of the first ones there. So <laughs> she took the initiative um, to uh, reach out to the student office. But I'm curious, um, did you look up any like local communities through social media? Because that, that's how they kind of formed. I later mm -hmm. heard that um, other communities uh, like form that way as well. And Facebook is really uh, prevalent in New Zealand as well. So how would you compare that finding community that way instead of like reaching out directly to yeah campus? Well, the truth is I have to admit, I am normally an extroverted person, so I'm really outgoing, but when I when I got to New Zealand, especially the first couple of months, I was, you know, very into myself. I was, you know, I think that's the first time in my life I realized that I had an introverted side. And um, so I really didn't reach out past um, on campus, but I did join a Caribbean community Facebook group, uh, which covers um all, all the different parts of New Zealand, all the different cities. Palmy, Palmerston North, where we lived, actually does not have a very big Caribbean community. There are hardly any Caribbean people there. So the opportunity to connect with people there was very limited, very limited. But what's really um, interesting is that uh, through that particular Facebook page, Diego, were you on that page? I don't think so. I was really there short. So. Oh, yeah. So through that page, I actually <laughs> met um, a student who was studying in Auckland, um, Anna, 
and she was doing research on liming, which is, I don't know if in Suriname you talk about liming, but she, she talked about liming as a research method. And so she actually came down to PAMI and she did some research with us in 2018, where we talked about um, readjusting to New Zealand culture. So that setting allowed us to connect with other people. And then Anna, in her research, uh, met up with some persons in Wellington. And then she would have then connected us with that group in Wellington. And so, well, that family in Wellington. And um, so the friendship just continued. So even though there was no direct link in Palmerston North, well, there was one family there for sure. Um, but there, there weren't a lot of um, Caribbean people there. We did get the opportunity to touch base with Caribbean people in other, in other um, cities. Okay, interesting. I, I mean, it's, 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 a, it's. I, I studied in, in, in Tilburg in, in Brabant, which, kind of in a way, was similar because if you know the Netherlands and the. The, the, geog the geography of the Netherlands a little bit, and you know that Brabant and Limburg, especially the south, it's not as integrated and multicultural mm -hmm. as, as as like the Randstad with uh, Den Haag, Rotterdam, Amsterdam. So it's it's very very interesting that that, that because I had a very similar experience, mm -hmm. um, and what I eventually did in the first year, um, I went to all these parties that were especially for foreign exchange students and, yeah. and foreign students. Mm -hmm. And then in the second year, I decided to, okay, let's, I had some Dutch friends who just, they just threw me right into like the mm -hmm. real mix, like getting to know what Dutch culture is. So, but I, I do recognize the loneliness mm -hmm. and finding out, I think there were three Surinamese people on my campus, like the oh whole university. Yeah. yeah, three Surinamese people, of which two I didn't know the other two. I, mm -hmm. I think like two years, three years later, I found out who they were. Um, so I think it's it's very interesting how, how that grew and that now you're kind of seen by us at least as like one of the leaders who, who got the Caribbean community and, and <laughs> especially in, in, in New Zealand going. So uh, well, thanks for sharing that. I'm Could just you share really the I'm Play just really happy liming for is. them. Liming, yeah. liming is yeah, just short. I think liming actually, I think, originated in Trinidad and Tobago, um, and it's a concept of just getting together and um, eating, drinking, and having fun. So that's what liming is. Okay. Awesome. Okay, I'm, that's uh, Marlon also says it because we have some comments coming in. So Marlon also says, "Yeah, it's a pretty thing." <laughs> and in Surinamese, it's it's wachella. Uh, okay, he also, I want to write that yeah. Down. So we're we're chilling. It's kind of like okay. the Surinamese version of it. Uh, oh, yeah. He also mentions that the I and he's going into uh, in, into specific uh, types. Uh, I and yeah, J are both both extro and introvert. Yeah. So that's interesting. We have mm -hmm. some introvert listeners as well. Uh, Gregory was also saying that he likes the, the audio and the video. And of okay. course, one of the people that I actually is Surinamese, I got to know him 
in Tilburg is Giano. So, oh, actually the wrong one. Sorry. Giano, thanks for uh, representing Tilburg as well. And Stephanie is also mentioning it's definitely a Trini, a Trini thing. <laughs> yes. So right now we're kind of chilling as well uh, on the internet. It's a little bit different. We don't have nice soca music. We don't have anything that, that kind of really gives the fight. But uh, social convos <laughs> is kind of a way to, to lime as well with others. So, for wow, sure. we're even... Yeah, we're even getting uh, Hayden in Barbados in the house. <laughs> so, uh, so we're really having everybody from the Caribbean in because Giano right now is also is in Curaçao. Uh, we have Suriname listening and representing as well. I'm here too, uh, listening. So uh, thank you for joining in, Gregory. So we, we have a good mix. And we promised them, Diego, to talk a little bit about the academic side as well. So we're... we're also going to ask you like why New Zealand? I mean, I've asked Diego why why New Zealand, but we also want to know why did you decide to do your PhD or start your PhD program in, in New Zealand? And how did, how did that come about? Uh, so why New Zealand first? I had a lecturer, no, I'm sorry, a teacher in secondary school who studied in New Zealand and just the way that she described it, it just seemed like a really interesting place. And it, I always felt like, okay, this is some place that I, I may want to study. And so when I was looking to do PhDs, uh, naturally it was one of the places that I looked at. I also looked at Australia. Um, I didn't want to do what I considered to be regular. So I, I lived in the US before. Um, I've never been to the UK, but I know that a lot of people go to the UK so, and that going to the UK shouldn't be that difficult. But New Zealand was kind of far and a very different experience. So I wanted to have a different kind of experience. And that's why I ended up going to New Zealand. Why I wanted to do my PhD? Um, because, my, because of my interest in lecturing. I love lecturing. Um, I love teaching, I love research, and so in order to be a lecturer, I need to to complete my PhD. So that's what set me on that journey. Okay, it's it's sorry, it's interesting that you mentioned that because I, um, it's something that especially in in Western countries. So I'm really curious if that's also the case in Barbados. Do you, if you want to lecture at a university in Barbados, do you also have to be do you have to also have a PhD? Yeah, um, for the most part, I can definitely speak for the department that I was a part of. I know a couple of years ago, people got away with um, just lecturing with their masters. But increasingly, the requirement has been for PhD, especially, I guess, universities need to become competitive. And part of being competitive means having... Um, faculty that um, compete at a certain level and so if everybody around the world has a PhD you know yeah. you want to have lectures that have a PhD as well so I think that for even for those countries who may not have that at this time that is something that will definitely evolve but do you think it's becoming diluted or in a sense because Pre, uh, like 10, 20 years ago, it, it was all the bachelor, um, 
uh, race. Uh, everyone, mm-hmm. you had to have a bachelor to get, you know, the high position, but that kind of diluted and now it's a master. Mm-hmm. And so do you think the current, I guess, academics, uh, structure that the world is set up now, it's mm-hmm. becoming diluted or do you still say it's worth getting that PhD if you're not into, uh, research and teaching as much but still having a phd if you want to you know run a business the more mm-hmm. the more business aspect all right so that's a really interesting question um as it relates to dilution i think that we are still a far way off where that's concerned as it relates to a phd a phd is also a huge investment in terms of time and brain power and so it can be very intimidating and i think even those in many cases, people that start don't even finish um, because of the time that it takes and um, the demand that it puts on your life in general. Um, so there are different types of doctorates. There's the doctorate of philosophy and then there's within business and there's also the doctorate of business administration. Now, both of them can teach at the university level uh, but if you're not that interested in research, then maybe one of the things you may consider is doing a doctor of business administration. That is um, more course oriented. Um, so it has um, more classroom time and it also has a research component because the truth is um, both of them are significant commitments. And I would say if somebody does uh a DBA, which is a doctor in business administration, it, it, it can show a commitment to their um, profession, uh, profession and one in their craft and business. Um, but a lot of people don't like research. And so a PhD is a significant amount of research. And so it really, lo- it really depends on what you, what you want to get into. Yeah, I'm I'm one of those that doesn't want to go deep into, you know, research, research. So kind of that that was my first uh, approach as picking mm-hmm. such a t- short time frame. But mm-hmm. yeah, it, it's a trade off you got to uh, pick. Yeah. So so I, I want to jump into this. Um, there are several questions. We'll, we'll come up to the question of Marlon in a, in a second. I have a question which is very similar to Gregory's question. So I'm, I want to allow Gregory first. So what Gregory says is a, a common criticism about academics is that theoretical assumptions become less realistic the further you go. How do you prevent yourself from becoming an armchair intellectual? That is, I think that that's, that is a really common criticism and perception. But I don't necessarily think that it is true. Um, I think that marketers, well, Marketing lecturers do contribute a lot as it relates to um, their community, for example, um, as it relates to research. So for example, my supervisor in New Zealand, she did research on blood donations. And that has, um, that has a very practical a- um, application within society. Um, the research that I'm doing uh, has to do with, the, with refugees and um, them navigating the service encounter with um, service providers and social services. And uh, so even if I look beyond the social side of marketing, even if you look at running a business, there is 
there's often the idea that there is a divide, there's a versus, which is really interesting, your topic. There's a marketing in academics versus a marketing in um, business divide. Um, but I think that the two of them really should work together a lot more. Yes. And um, I think that we would all be the better for it. Marketing, um, academics, and um, marketing um, business practitioners. I think it's 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 the principle. So I'm I'm quickly gonna dive into this because I've I'm, I'm with a similar thing. In the end, the PhD is about value. So depending on and there's different types of value. We have to understand, like you mentioned, it's four years. I think all PhDs are at least four years of your time that that you it have to go through. Three. It can be three, um, yeah, but it means you, that. <laughs> Yeah, but it means you have to specialize, really specialize in a certain topic. Mm -hmm. So when you come out with a PhD, it really means that you fully understand a certain topic, a certain area. Now, the problem that I have with PhD is that in the end, the PhD is about value, whether it's value to the community, value to the research, value to the topic, or in some cases, value to the economics, mm -hmm. because there's also an economic side behind it. And it's not that I dislike the fact that it's being used for economics, but it's also the universities who write the most A-list articles, get paid the most, get ranked the highest, which means that you want to uh, uh, list as many A-list articles in A-list magazines, academic mm -hmm. journals as possible. And that often means that sometimes professors tend to push PhD students into a direction because they know that there's interest in that direction from that economic really often so yeah. i think that's my biggest issue and mm -hmm. and that's also connected to uh the topics that are kind of new because mm -hmm. it's really hard to do academic research on a topic that's new there's mm -hmm. a limited li uh, literature or literature available there's limited uh pre-research or research that you can use often research that you have to use is is not really meant for that purpose i think one of the research searches I learned most about is from Geert Hofstede, which is a guy who was working for IBM and he focused yeah. on national culture, which mm -hmm. isn't by all means isn't an academic research, but still it it's isn't. being used. It is not really. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. so and that's what you meant for like working together between the 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 yeah. the, the, the the, the the actually the, the professional field and the academics. So mm -hmm. where my worry is the most is that Investing in a PhD, especially in marketing, especially in HR, uh, topics that are quite new to the academic mm -hmm. field, and maybe not new in the sense like it's already been 30 years that they've been around as academic uh, part of the acad academic structure, but they're relatively new. And my worry is that those fields move so quickly, mm -hmm. and academics is all about proven concept, proven theory over time that often i think for phd it's kind of hard to one hand come up with something that's new that people your the professors will be like okay it's worth pursuing this and on the other side it's staying relevant that it's not a topic that you've done your 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 phd and then five years after you've done your phd like everybody yeah but that's so five years ago that topic yeah. isn't, isn't relevant so i think like how 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 did you choose because you chose uh not directly but it's related to customer service like mm -hmm. how did you what did you factor in when you decided your uh, phd topic 
Okay, I just want to go back a little bit to your point about yeah. um, a PhD offering value because I think that that point is very important. Um, and it's important for persons to know that as a researcher, you evolve. I've heard many people say that the the PhD is just the start of the career. And then after that, you get to research whatever you want okay. to research because there's so much um, leeway uh, to to go into different avenues. And then as a PhD, there's so many different skills that you learn, especially as it relates to um, research and, and research ethics. There's a lot of resilience. Um, there's um, definitely a sharpening of your writing skills, um, presentation skills, reporting. And so there's a lot of value that comes out of it outside of that paper that you present at the end. And so it's not something that you should just say, okay, well, after I've done this, then, you know, what next? After you've done this, there are a lot of different directions that you can you can go because you've, you've gotten a lot of, what's the word, transferable skills, right? So just after that also, how you market yourself. Now, as it relates to how I did my, how I chose my PhD, now my PhD topic, I would have done my master's in something commercial. So I looked at the profile of the Caribbean male grocery shopper. <laughs> now, okay. I wanted to do something that I considered to be social for my PhD. I wanted to do something that is, um, meaningful because that's where my heart is i i am someone who's interested in um development of other people and providing opportunities um, for others and so i saw that there was a a gap in the research as it relates to providing um studies on the provision of services for vulnerable populations and Originally, I was going to look at mental health. And then I decided when I looked at the literature a little bit more that um, refugees um, actually were really underserved. Um, and there was not a lot of research that went into um, providing services for them. There's a lot of adaptation um, that goes into moving from one country to the other and 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 not there's not a willing movement you're uprooted and you are sent uh, you don't get to choose where you're going and then you go to a place where you have a lot of language barriers and you have a totally different way of doing things and a, di a different way of approaching life and you're just dropped into this situation and i think that um even though governments sometimes put measures in place, I think that there was need for um, a greater look into the refugee perspective on, um, on their needs and um, how they felt about the service. So that's how I ended up doing my topic. Okay. I'm still uh trying to wrap my head around on how, I guess, oh. Yeah, oh, that's marketing. marketing. Yeah, because 
marketing usually the perception is you know commercial drive sales and you're approaching it from a very social uh, angle so yeah could you elaborate on that a bit sure um that's a really common question i have to explain this all the time yeah <laughs> so i'm very used to it i'm very used to it um so marketing focuses on the customer right and any encounter that a customer or a consumer has with the service provider is involves marketing and so services when we think about marketing a lot of times we think about marketing products but we don't think so much about marketing services and so even though it's social it's also a service and when you think about it those services have to be marketed and those services have to be designed because if we want um, vulnerable populations to patronize a service then what we have to do is make the service attractive to them and we have to do research to find out how we can get them to come um, what kind of materials um, we put out there what kind of networks we use to get them um, how to design the how to design the um, the office or, or what's not so for example with my research one of the things that i realized is that a lot of the um, refugees felt really comfortable in home-like environments and so sometimes interacting with them um, it's best not to put them to sit with them in an office and have a conversation with them but to you know take them to the kitchen because they like to have conversation over food and just like caribbean people so the thing is so it's about understanding um, that it's a service and and, and the customer is at the root. And because the customer and pleasing the customer and meeting the customer need is at the root, that's why it's marketing. This is so fascinating, Diego. <laughs> no, Diego still looks puzzled though. No, no, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm getting the red thread a bit. And in a sense, I feel like the, the marketing goes deeper and it's a recurring theme that I see into like social, uh, social science and psychology that affects the behavior of, I guess, in this case, your consumers, be mm -hmm. it social or commer commercial, yeah. but there's a lot of emphasis on behavior here. Yes. Yes. So I guess marketing in a sense is like a behavior science if you look at ac academically. Yeah, when you look at marketing, there is a lot of psychology associated with marketing. Um, so there are a lot of psychological theory that is associated with marketing. And even when you look at sociology, m there's a lot of marketing theory that has come out of sociology as well. So a lot of persons look at the economic side of it, but you know, marketing actually draws from you know, a lot of different disciplines. Social science is, is, is in some cases overrated and in some cases underrated. Also, the reasons it's, it's, it's overrated is because in some cases people use social science to push uh, political perspectives on people, mm -hmm. which can be very dangerous. And on mm -hmm. the other side, it's 
it's especially when people talk about numbers and especially when you focus on exact science, some things you cannot explain through exact science uh, or, or, or through economics. So there is also a social aspect. And this is why I, I find this so perplexing because it's great that you asked the question, Diego, because in first, in, in the first, when you first look at the research, you're like, oh, but how is that marketing? But we're, we're seeing a similar thing with, with vaccines and with COVID-19 and how that's being marketed by governments exactly. and how is that being marketed? And it's always from the economics perspectives. It's very, very often not from the social perspective, which to be honest, I'm not going to get into because there will be some red flags and I will get some calls tomorrow yeah. if I do. But, um, I do have to ask, uh, considering COVID's been here for almost, or for most of us over a year, mm -hmm. how has that impacted your research? Because I feel like it must have in a certain way also had impact. And, and did you have to like, uh, adapt the chapter of your research to a change situation due to COVID or, or the, 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 is the kind of the starting point the same, uh, as it was when you started your PhD? Well, the truth is, because my because I collected my data before COVID started, oh. yeah, I got oh. I got really lucky. <laughs> <laughs> so I collected my data before COVID started. So my my data actually was not affected by the research and sorry by COVID. And that I also have pretty good relationships with the stakeholders. And so at any point in time, I can send them an email, I can WhatsApp them and, you know, ask them questions. Um, so, you know, that's also a really um, important thing as it relates to, to academics and research, really developing um, and maintaining those kind of relationships. Uh, you said your data wasn't affected because you collected it before COVID, but I assume that the uh... COVID still had an impact on it. So um, would you argue that the data you collected is like kind of evergreen data? Like it's data you could apply regardless of an external factor like COVID having like a global effect? No, the thing about research is that, um, especially for a PhD, you deal with a particular topic. And then after that, you have... Um, and from reading articles, you would see um, su um, suggestions for su um, future research or recommendations for su future research. So that actually is something that can be considered um, for future research. How has COVID impacted the, um, the services being offered to refugees? So that's actually really interesting. Thanks, Diego. Yeah, because that's the base study. So. <laughs> And is putting in a base study and then a master yeah. student or a bachelor student can take parts of research and no, use that I for the that basis topic. of you I want, want to that okay good i love it i love it so diego i don't know whether or not you want to quickly jump into the comments yeah. do a quick fire uh, as well uh, yeah. in the meantime a lot of people joined in uh Devin's here again saying hey um Devin and Rohan saying good evening. Um, Gregory shortly mentions uh, that PG in economics is the worst because that's his field. So uh, let's not go into that debate now because we're focused on marketing. Um, but yeah, that's a different topic uh, in itself. Um, 
So we got someone on politics here. One quip I've heard is that the economists become so envious of physicists that they constructed new domains simply for mathematical complexity instead of realistic value. So um, yeah, that's just, I, I'm not sure how that impacts like social marketing, but uh, yeah. So, and we got uh, some more statements agreeing with your some of your views and yeah, some are directed to the economics, but let's focus here. We're here to talk about the marketing side. And I one more. I yeah. quickly do have one more. Uh, and this is this is one from Ireland. My friend in China said it feels like a, a lifelong marriage, and then you give letters in your name. I think that's referring to the life as a PhD, uh, as a PhD student. Have you felt that? Is do do you what's the the biggest um, compromise that you had to make? because you are doing a PhD? I, I feel sometimes like I've put my life on hold. And my best friend always says to me, your life is not on hold, you're living, <laughs> you know? Um, but it just seems sometimes like I am just in this, you know, this zone. And that's the only thing that I'm doing. and. Especially when I was in New Zealand, I think now that I'm back home with my family, I feel a lot more um, relaxed and involved. But I felt like my life was mostly PhD when I was in New Zealand, and so yeah, it is. Can we touch on that lot. contrast a bit? Because yeah. you left 2017 um, from the islands to a bigger island, New Zealand, oh. and. Oh. That's very Western. New Zealand's very Western, like uh, yeah. regard to one of the richer countries. So, and now you got a pandemic in between going back to Barbados as a totally different situation. Mm -hmm. How has that, uh, I guess, changed your views on, I guess, Barbados versus New Zealand? But mm -hmm. yeah, in, in general, how did that contrast uh, affect you going back home? Uh, well, one thing I, I did have to adjust to when I came back was wearing masks. Like, wearing masks was so annoying to me. And because, Diego, as you know, we didn't wear masks in New Zealand. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so it was, it was really frustrating. It was really frustrating. Uh, but also when I came home, there wasn't a lot going on with COVID. We had seven deaths at that point in time. And it, it wasn't really stirring around. We didn't have a lot of cases. Uh, so a lot, sorry, very minimal um, activity as it relates to COVID. That changed in December. And so when I compare what happened in December to what is, what happened from December to now and what happened in New Zealand, I would say it's very similar. Um, we have in recent weeks have pretty heavy handed measures as it relates to closing down the country. But, you know, necessary. Uh, and it has had a, an effect on our economy, just like it had in New Zealand. And just like business owners um, were very concerned about, um, you know, business and, you know, there were concerns about layoffs. You know, that's something that we had a concern about as well. Um, I think one of the similarities is that we, you know, both countries have um, strong female leaders. And so there's that element of 
um, compassion as well. Um, where I would say there's a difference is in terms of resources. We do not have as, as much um, in way of resources as New Zealand. So as it relates to the country actually supporting um, persons who are unemployed or laid off, we are doing it right now, but you know, there's a point in time where our resources are going to to suffer because there's not if there if people aren't working, there's not money going into national security, and then so if there's not uh, money going into it, then you know, taking money out is a problem. Um, but New Zealand has a much bigger economy, and so they have um, they have the opportunity to do that on a wider scale. Vaccinations as well. I think that they would be better off as it relates to vaccinations and and finding what they consider to be the best vaccine and being able to purchase vaccines, which is something that would be more difficult for us. None, nobody in the Caribbean, like no country in the Caribbean, was able to get the first dose of the Pfizer vaccine which I find very, very interesting yeah. how that works. But basically, it's kind of like, yeah, we're going to keep the good stuff for us. I think there was an article today that kind of highlighted that Western countries have like four times, some Western countries have like four times the amount of vaccines that, that yeah. they need. And like the whole Caribbean was like, Pfizer was like, first round of Pfizer of the Caribbean? Yeah, sorry, you're not... No countries, not even mm. the biggest like Jamaica or anything. Like nobody got mm. uh, into the first round, which I find. I mean, geopolitics. We we spoke about uh, academic politics already mm. on getting into the the the, the bigger uh, journals, academic journals. But geopolitics is all about geopolitics as well, unfortunately. Mm. So I I do think it's interesting to see because compared to Western European countries, I have a feeling that New Zealand is. A little bit, not. I mean, that's something you guys have to tell me. Is there? Is there? Have you been to Western European countries? Have you uh, lived there or studied there, or can you draw a comparison on on? I feel I like for some not. reason, for some reason, I feel Australia and New Zealand are a little bit more relaxed than Western mm -hmm. European countries. Uh, but I can't. I I can't. I don't. I can't give any facts on that. But it does some way feel that. And I think New Zealand, when it comes to certain campaigns, like uh, government campaigns, especially the campaigns surrounding wearing a seatbelt in your car, those kind of campaigns, New Zealand has a very strong way of, of getting the message across, which is really interesting, which we don't see in a lot of countries. So I'm also kind of worried now. I'm rambling on a bit, but I'm also wondering, like, how is that connected to the female leadership that you're talking about? Uh, well, it's important to note that we all we haven't always had female leadership. Uh, um, same thing with New Zealand; they haven't had um, always had female leadership. So, I think that in in some ways that is also a reflection of the type of society that you living live in. So, when we talk about Hofstad, for example, um, and if we are to use his theory. Uh, where he talks about some societies being feminine versus masculine, for example, I think that those kind of things would be taken into to consideration um, when we look at things like campaigns and and how the country is governed on a whole. 
So do you see that? Like if, if we like, take like Hofstede's uh, metrics, do you mm. recognize Barbados as a f- more feminine country? That's a really good question. I have, I have not, I've never thought about it. I have never thought about it and I am not quite I am not quite sure where we where we sit. It's it's hard because IBM often didn't have the data of, of the Caribbean as well. Yeah. When I when I first got to Australia, the the guy who was our, our professor was from Greece and mm. he was going through the list and I was trying to find Suriname, 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 but Suriname wasn't on the list. I don't and think we were I, on the list either. No, and I think. But even I think, thinking about it, I'm trying to think. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. I think Germany might be a good example, but I'm talking off my head here. I don't have again. Well, I Germany, don't have factual Germany evidence. Germany is supposedly masculine. Supposedly masculine. I thought both Germany and the Netherlands were a little bit more feminine than. Uh, I I do know for a fact one thing that I I can factually say is that um, Caribbean countries are much more. Uh, a group oriented uh, compared for to sure. the mm. Yes. For sure. So, so that's one thing I can say. I couldn't say other uh, uncertainty of violence is a very interesting one. Uh, uh, I think, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, what's it called? The power, uh, power distance. Yes, mm-hmm. I mean, in, yeah, in general, Caribbean countries have a very, very big power distance. Like we, in, in traditional speaking, we we're like, yes, it's allowed. Our boss is allowed to have like this big office and this big car, and we're never allowed. Where we don't question him because he or she is God. That that power I distance. I think that's yeah. changing a lot, you know. I it's don't know. changing a lot, indeed. Yeah, yeah, for sure, yeah. it's changing a lot. There's a lot of. Um, informality that's um, developing in the workplace because people are realizing that um, these hierarchies aren't working, you know, they aren't necessarily producing. And so people have to change the times. I, I think this is evolving a lot through the internet as well. I, I yeah, want to quickly sure. um, dive into that. So, um, yeah, the, the Western countries are more um, the opposite of what you guys said, more individual uh, uh, focused, um, no power distance. Do you think this is caused by, I guess, the overwhelming part of like the media and the world ruled by the, I guess, the Western capitalist society and that having an overflowing impact on the smaller nations and changing, shifting the way people behave and react on that? Absolutely. I think that, you know, the larger Western countries, particularly for the Caribbean, I think that U.S., the U.S. does have a uh, an impact. I mean, we watch, I don't know about in Suriname, but in Barbados, we watch a lot of um, Caribbean, sorry, a lot of U.S. television. So there are lots of children. Well, I grew up watching it, but when I look at my some of my nephews, for example, or other little children, you hear them talking and you hear that they have an American accent. And it's because they listen to so much TV that sometimes when they when they say certain words, you know, you hear that coming out. So there's definitely an influence. Yeah, I, I'm going to agree on that. But I also agree that the internet is disrupting this whole thing a lot. And, and, and the individual, because 
in the end, the individual notions. So there's kind of the, the individual pros where you are like, okay, I'm personally going to develop myself. I'm going to put myself first. And then you also have kind of the, the, the group, uh, the group environment where you're saying like, no, we're here for each other. And, yeah. um, I think, I think it's changing. Uh, we are more, still are more group oriented. It's, it's part of our culture indeed, like some of you are saying in the comments. So that's, that's really the case, but it's also becoming less. Uh, it's a lot more. And now that there's the internet, people are taking the good bits. It's much easier. Let's, let's take it from a, a center and periphery perspective. So the center, the center could be the economic center of the world, like the biggest cities where all the money comes through. It could be the cultural capitals of the world. It could be uh, even um, the uh, academic uh, capitals of the world. That's kind of the center. Basically, mm -hmm. that's they decide what's is what is of value for the rest of the world, mm -hmm. and 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 the periphery is kind of everybody else who doesn't have the resources, the possibilities, the money to to get into the same info, to get into the same capital. But what we're seeing now is because of decentralization in the world in general, all of a sudden I can pick the best things from any country in the world, from anywhere that I want, and I can start implementing it. And mm -hmm. what we were worried about, and this is something very pragmatic, mm -hmm. uh, it's not necessarily academic or sci uh, scientific, what we were worried about, like one of my biggest worries when I thought about Ricardo Semler's method of how he runs a business, mm -hmm. allowing the people in your company to decide their salary for themselves. Mm -hmm. One of the biggest worries was like, yeah, but what if I get somebody who totally has no self-awareness and wants to earn more than everybody, like even the board members, how yeah. do you approach that? And, and, and when you put it into practice, you're surprised. You're surprised mm -hmm. by the fact that when people are given that opportunity, most of them are like, no, this is if either they cannot work in that environment and you'll figure it out within six months that that person isn't fit for the responsibility to, to decide mm -hmm. their own salary. Yeah. Are they, are you realize that, it, it makes them even more accountable and makes them even want to do it more. Mm -hmm. So I think this concept, if you would have thought about this in the 90s and somebody would have said it in the 90s and he would put it in, want to implement it in Syria, and I'm like, hey, this is this new marketing strategy that Richard Branson invented. We should try it in Suriname. People would be mm -hmm. like, you're out of your mind. You're out of your mind. Mm -hmm. And now we get to see examples from everywhere in the world where the best bits are taken, people put it into practice and it works, which, which gives us the confidence to say like, okay, uh, my national culture for Suriname might be this uh, through research, but um, now we're seeing that we can go against the, 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 the drain. We can actually decide to say like, okay, but if it works, it might be able to work here as well. I actually want to pick up on two things that you said as it relates to decentralization and um, groups. Now, definitely there is a lot of decentralization as it relates to education because before people saw education as university and, and even a, a trade school, for example. So it had to happen within an institution. But what the internet has done, it has allowed for people to go online and find information. You have um, Coursera, for example, where people can sign up for courses and audit courses for free. And um, they can put it on their resume. There's HubSpot, there's Google Analytics. I've done a HubSpot, two HubSpot courses, for example, even though, the, I'm, even though I'm doing a PhD, you know? 
Um, so you definitely don't have to go into to academics in order to, to learn some of these things. There's a lot of resources um, out there. But the, what I would say is that the resources start somewhere. So I don't want people to divorce practice from, um, from the resources. You know, the resource, sorry, the, what the resources began with is the research. And yes. academics doing the research and doing all the testing and the numbers and the validation and the, the qualitative question, um, research and asking all the right questions. And this is now becoming available in a, a decentralized way for persons to access this information. So there is a lot of, of growth in that area. Uh, and then as it relates to society and the internet and um, how it's bringing us together as groups, it, it actually um, made me think about memes. Uh, I love memes. Memes crap me up. <laughs> uh, um, I think that one of the things that I've learned over the past couple of years is that all over the world, we are so alike. You know, we find some of the same things funny and we find a lot of the same things interesting. We have very similar experiences. So I think it's bringing a lot of the world together. And so whereas um, we were kind of in our silos before, you know, people are building communities and those communities are, you know, people are building, building networks for business, um, but they're also building networks to, to help each other and provide support. There, there are Facebook pages where people uh, provide support for mental health or people that have had certain um, medical procedures. So there definitely is the opportunity um, with the internet and particularly social media to really unite as a people are to, to do good things. It's really about what you want to do with the information that you have. Yeah, with access and I guess information being democratized and access being co becoming more easily for people, in, you get this counter problem of like too much information, finding the valid stuff, kind of like finding the needles in the haystacks. It's true. Um, so, but my counterpoint to that is, uh, this is a recurring thing that we've seen in our previous episodes, like the rise of tribes, these little communities, tight-knit communities mm. that actually help um, curate the best information into mm -hmm. a sense. So from a marketing, consumer behavior, and social media perspective, mm -hmm. how can this curation be amplified so that these communities don't get lost in the haystack to find the actual valid information. Mm, so how do marketing marketers find these tribes, or how, how can we apply? Uh, yeah, how can marketers or how can they apply marketing within these tribes to find you know the right people and so that people also find the right tribes to, to join for information they want to find. Well, tribes and marketing are very important. <laughs> Uh, that is uh, a social media um, group is excellent fodder for um, finding out information um, about how people behave. So 
consumer behavior basically looks at how people select information, um, how they purchase information, how they use, um, how they, sorry, not purchase products or services, how they use those products and services. It even goes as far as how they dispose of the products and services. So what marketers can do is become a part of these trades and therefore mine information so they can mine information well if they are the persons who have set up the communities which is sometimes the case then there's always the business analytics behind it um, but there are some cases where um, the consumers because you're seeing this increasingly they are creating their own consumer trades and it is up to marketers to to get involved in these kind of conversations, see what people have to say about their product, their services, see how people are using them, um, see what kind of suggestions that they have to make about them so that they can continue to, to produce value because marketing is all, marketing is about communicating, creating and delivering value. Um, yes, that is very textbook. But that is exactly what it is. It is about creating, communicating, and delivering value. And so you have to, in order to communicate, create, and deliver value, you have to find out what does my consumer find to be valuable. And the best place to find out is to talk to them and to be in a space where they're talking to each other and where they can also talk to you. And it's a lot of work. And yes. <laughs> if you have a super, and if you have a sup superior approach, you will fail. Yes. If you're going in to a tribe to convince them of your standpoints without understanding what the tribe is about, you will fail miserably. And I feel that we're not putting enough effort. And as we, I'm talking about as a collective, I, we, I'm talking about the government, mm -hmm. uh, the people, the leaders of today's world, because it's a lot of work, mm -hmm. and. And even from a personal perspective, even if I want to do it, and, and I think that's also a struggle uh, I think a lot of people are in. We are so committed and so deep into our own rat race that uh, we find it hard to look outside of our own world to deal with real issues that we have because yeah. those real issues take effort. Like you, if, if you've planned out your life and you want to do this and it's already going a little bit according to plan, it's really easy or it's relatively easy for you to go your path and stay into a successful path and focus on yourself and building yourself. But to go out of that and thinking really about the community and understanding that if you want to do something for the community, um, you're going to have to work twice as hard. Everybody's going to be against against you because you're trying to fix something that some people just don't realize or don't even want to have fixed. So, and that's, and that's, and then we, we get into politics easily because that's a lot of times what happens with politicians. Mm -hmm. And at a certain point, we take them for granted, but we take so many people for granted. So for you, my compliments for you to taking your time uh, to think about a, a topic that is that is very very important to us to understand, and uh, it's being misunderstood. And maybe COVID has halted it a bit, mm -hmm. but the drive towards people migrating to other countries will get bigger and bigger and bigger this decade. Mm -hmm. So, I think it's 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 a good very good starting point. But there are so many 
uh, social topics surrounding migration. And I know that uh, like the UN deals with these kind of things a lot. Mm-hmm. And they approach it from a certain perspective where mm-hmm. a lot of people are disagreeing with their approach because it's a governmental approach and not really a social approach. Mm-hmm. So I really respect people that are still in the phase where or still believe in, in doing research that actually helps society, even if there's so much, so many people that are moving against you, mm-hmm. that you still feel like, I want to do something that, that makes society better. So yeah. <laughs> props, props to that. Thank you so much. Yeah. I think let's take a few, uh, the last questions from the comment section and then wrap up. And I think Devon's question here, um, follows up nicely to what you mentioned before. And on a previous episode, we had a topic on branding a nation, a country. Mm. So what are your thoughts on how can you apply social marketing on a country level, on a national level, per se, Barbados? Okay. So let's start with the fact that social marketing and marketing with... There's a difference between social marketing and... Um, marketing social services. Social marketing really looks at um, behavior change. And so if we want to um, change the way that people look, that people behave in a nation in order to brand the nation, I think we have to start at looking at things that, I think we have to start looking at things that add value to the nation. And um, not only for us, but for others. So for example, um, things like the way that we keep the country in terms of tidiness, you know, is there a lot of littering? So we can put social marketing um, campaigns in place to encourage people to change their behavior as it relates to littering. Um, Things like, um, things like customer service. So if you want to attract people to your um, nation, um, and, and it doesn't even have to be um, persons who work within the hotel industry, for example, or within stores. It could be j- just the average Barbadian person. What we would want to do is to promote a culture. Actually, we've had a campaign here that says, tourism is our business, let's play our part. Because the the emphasis was that everybody in the country has an impact on how tourists see our nation and so therefore it is our responsibility so i think um branding um has to go um when you look at social marketing and branding it really has to go to an individual level you really have to the stakeholders or the persons in charge really have to look at sending messaging to individual persons and getting them to understand how they need to change their behavior in order to make the nation better. And in addition to that, if you change the nation and make it better, how does it benefit you as an individual? How does it benefit your children and your children's children? And so I think those are some of the ways uh, that you can do it. Um, I also, I know you asked about Barbados, but I I, I actually thought about India, for example, and some of the issues that India was having as it relates to um, water sanitation and persons um, 
not women in particular um, not feeling comfortable. Um, they're not being enough toilets around and women holding their urine or excrement until um, until they found the bathroom and how it was affecting them physically. It was making them ill and how India had to put campaigns in place um, to to make sure that persons realize how detrimental that can be and how as a government they had to you know start putting um toilets in strategic places so that um women could access those things and i think that those kind of things make countries look more pro progressive and therefore a, somebody may say okay well you know india you know there's a problem with public excrement in india um, because it happens sometimes however i'm unwilling to visit there now because i've seen that the government is willing to put certain things in place um so that's my thoughts on that i hope that i answered the question there's so yes. many follow-up questions that yes. you would want to ask <laughs> do we have time <laughs> Um, maybe one, Shanduk. Let, let's go. Let's go with one. What, what's, what are your thoughts? The, yeah, they're they're popping so much popping to my head. Uh, I see one here from Gregory. Uh, I, I maybe want to use his his uh, his question. Let's let's just use his question, and if there's time, we we do a, a quick uh, follow up on it as well. So, our conspiracy theories. Uh, uh, websites a danger to the well-being of their tribes or their communities and what is the solution for uh, this problem before you answer i i might you, you might want to answer it separately but i'm basically having a similar question not exactly the same but for me the question is like um there's a lot of uh pseudo how do you say this correctly um pseudo intellectual wisdom going around especially around, also around well-being, but also around marketing. Mm -hmm. And like, what is the mis biggest misconception about uh, the academic field of marketing? So I, it's it's a separate question. So, But the first question, of course, is the question of, of Gregory uh, on uh, our conspiracy theory websites, a danger to the well-being of their tribes and communities, and what is the solution to that? And then a follow-up question for me is like, what is the biggest misconception that people would think like, okay, I can learn something from the internet about marketing. What's the main aspect that they miss when they haven't uh, done marketing from an academic perspective? Okay. All right. So Gregory's question. I think that as long as you have information out there that is fake, it is a danger um, to the well-being of, of persons. Um, because especially, especially when it comes to them maybe avoiding things or becoming involved in activities because they're told that certain information is, you know, um, false or certain information is real so um and i'm not going to pick a side on this because i'm not you know i'm not a political person um, but even as it relates to things like um getting vaccines and whether you should or whether you shouldn't there is a lot of conversation around it and a, a lot of theories on you know whether that's that's good or or not um microchipping uh, 
there's also a lot of debate on that as well. And the thing is, um, I think that the persons, I think one, people often believe what they want to believe. Um, I think two, it is the job of um, persons, whether they be marketing practitioners or researchers who are um, using marketing methods or communication methods to get information out there to um, to get the information to those people. Now, I I I don't I don't want to draw this off for too long, but I remember watching a video um, about this lady. She went to she used to attend the Westboro Baptist Church in the U.S. and they do a lot of picketing at funerals of military people and you know they say things like god hates homosexuals and all of these different things and so this lady she was the granddaughter of the person that founded the church then she entered a community and her her plan was to spam the community with negative information but then somebody actually you know people in the community actually started to engage her and they, so they civilly asked her, okay, so why do you think this? And um, have you ever thought about it that way? And slowly but surely through, you know, not judging her and having conversations with her, you know, she was able to come around and now she's no longer a part of that church. She doesn't believe in what they believe in anymore. So I think also we need to look at the tone of the message. We can't approach people like they're stupid. Because I'm sure that everybody thinks that somebody is stupid about something, you know. So I think if you want people to change their behavior, um, the best way to do it is to be kind and to approach them um, with respect. So I think that that's what marketers need to do. Um, that's, and that's the place that the messaging has to come from. Sarcasm is not a good idea, for example. Um, and messaging for that kind of thing because, you know, it offends. It's just not going to work. Now, your question about the misconception. I think the biggest misconception about marketing is that it is, there are two major misconceptions. That is just about advertising and that it is just about manipulating people, getting people to do what you want to do. Um, and the truth is advertising is just a really small part of, of marketing, you know, you know, if you, if you think about it from the academic perspective, there's the seven P's. If you look at services, right, there's product price, um, you know, there's product price distribution. Um, what else is there? There's process, people, physical evidence promotion, which is where advertising belongs. So there are so many different aspects of it that you have to consider when you're marketing. And so just to just look at one tiny piece. So if you look at advertising, that's a part of promotion, but so is sponsorship. Sponsorship is a part of promotion as well. So corporate um, social responsibility. Exactly. So yeah. the thing is you like, so you limit yourself when you think that because there's so much more that you can do when you've expanded your knowledge in that area. And then 
um, in terms of manipulation and trying to get people to do what you want to do, yes, um, you are in some ways um, trying to, you know, influence consumer behavior. But sometimes it's also about being able to understand consumer behavior so that you can guide them toward well-being. Now, when you look at the history, when you look at the history of marketing and where it has evolved from, at first it was the, there was a product orientation, so you're just trying to find the most um, the best quality products to sell to the market. You weren't considering what people wanted. And then you were focused on trying to sell the most product. And then people realized, okay, you know what? We have to look at the customer and find out what the customer really wants, which is the marketing concept. And now there's a holistic marketing concept where, which realizes that it's just not about the person that you're selling to, but it's also about the um, community and stakeholders at large. Like how is your product affecting the environment for example and so marketing also does good so like most things you can use it for good or you can use it for bad it seems that from what you're summing up there and from my personal observations a lot of businesses only touch on maybe two or three pieces on that uh, chart yeah and yeah i think that's something more and more businesses and I guess younger entrepreneurs and marketers should look at and Absolutely. going into academics is something uh, we're doing in that sense. Yeah, well, at least I mean at least learning the at least learning the basics I would yeah. say. No, I was just gonna say a lot of marketing practice comes again comes out of theory. And we do things because we've seen other people learn um, doing it and you know um and that's okay, but sometimes you don't have all the information. And so, you know, and some of the very successful people, you know, haven't had um, tertiary education, for example. So I'm not saying that that's the route that you have to go, but my thing is definitely get some knowledge because I think that it will definitely broaden um, your It'll broaden your opportunities and it can really help you to, to scale your business. Cool. And you're getting a lot of compliments uh, from it's uh, Deanne Smith uh, relation. <laughs> yes. Thank you, yeah. Deanne. That's my sister. And She's in the next room. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and Jonathan also says, great input for, from Roanne. <laughs> Tevin says, thank you for the answers. Uh, yes. Gregory says, memes are life. Yes. And I guess to close it off, uh, to bring it back home um, from your fellow Bajan, I, I assume. Rowan, if you could make one marketing change for Barbados, what would you prioritize? Hey, no, no. What you want to ask me a hard question? <laughs> what are you trying to embarrass me on the people show today? Um, if I could change one marketing thing um, in Barbados, what would I prioritize? Um, I think that we need to, as a country, get into more marketing research. Um, I think that there's a, a lot of data that can be captured in Barbados that's not captured, that can be used for good, and it can be used to change the lives of people. Um, and when I say that, I don't even mean it from a social perspective. I mean, in terms of employment, you know, being able to, to give jobs to people 
and create create an employment. And I think um, I think we need to get more serious about qualitative research. Uh, there's a lot of emphasis on numbers, numbers, numbers. What do these stats say? But I think we need to find out why are people doing what they're doing. So it's not it's not just about knowing what people are doing, but finding out the why. Um, I think when we find out the why, we're able to offer better value. And there you have it, uh, Hayden. So, Sean, look. Um, awesome. Final thoughts, and then we'll give. I'm just going to say there are even more uh, well-dones coming in here. We do have to close it off. We want to thank everybody for watching. It was a really good show when it comes to viewers' perspective. There were a lot of people uh, in here that uh, went in for questions and asked questions. So thanks mm -hmm. for keeping this interactive. Rowan, thanks so much for joining in and being our guest. Thank I know you. we haven't touched on everything which we were supposed yeah. to touch on. So there is definitely a few to show in the making. Uh, no but I want to allow, awesome. Uh, but I do want Diego to close off the show, allow uh, the viewers to know how they can listen or re-listen uh, this podcast, and then we'll do the outro. Yeah, so um, to close off um, the this episode, in case you have friends who missed it, this episode will be released on Saturday on the podcasting platform, so you can check it out there. If you missed the previous episodes i highly recommend it uh, it's we also cover other marketing aspects from different angles especially social media so check those out in the meantime while you wait to re-listen to this one and it's on convos.com um so i want to give roan uh, a chance to say what people can expect for you from you in the near future how they can find you if you want them to find you yeah and any last messages and then we'll close off okay so if you want to find me um, a good place to find me is on linkedin um, or on facebook um, my name is roan smith on there and um, you can just send me a message and let me know that you've watched the program and maybe you want to connect and ask some questions i would be i would be more than happy to do that um, what to expect from me um, to finish my PhD <laughs> and also to, to make an impact. Um, I really want to do some work in the disability space, um, you know, improving the lives of, of persons with disabilities. Um, I want to get into some more teaching and lecturing, that's my passion. And so, yeah, that's what you can look forward to from me. Thank you so much, Ryan. Thank you. That was Social Convos. Excellent job. We're heading to the outro and see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. <laughs>